Welcome to the final episode of Honey, I Just Got Raptured, a Left Behind Reread podcast. I'm Aaron, your host, and this week, we see the Antichrist fully unveiled. Today, Ray and Chloe pray for Buck's safety while the intrepid journalist attends the meeting of a lifetime. After we finally finish this novel, I'll discuss how the name Left Behind is more than just a title, but a franchise that sprouted more heads than a hydra in the late 90s and early aughts. Ready? Let's get this thing done. Chapter 23 begins with Buck setting up a meeting with Bruce Barnes for later that day. He checks in with the Global Weekly office in Chicago, where he begins the process of interviewing for a replacement bureau chief. If you'll remember way at the beginning of the book, Lucinda Washington, one of two people of color with lines in this novel, formally headed the Chicago branch before the rapture. At the end of every interview, he asks where each person believes Lucinda is now. About half of them respond that she's in heaven, if such a thing exists. As Buck prepares to leave the office at the end of the day, he catches a CNN report informing the world that Nikolai Carpathia has hesitantly accepted the title of Secretary General of the UN, after a near-unanimous vote. The former Secretary General, Wanganti Ngomo, told reporters he had to step down because of problems in his native Botswana. When questioned about whether or not he would have stepped down without Carpathia to take over, Ngomo responds that he may have delayed the move, but would still have left office eventually. But with Nikolai in charge, he's very confident about the UN's future. It is also revealed that hours after being sworn in, Carpathia's massive structural changes to the UN were approved, including the creation of a 10-member Security Council and moving the UN capital to New Babylon. While many voice concerns about Carpathia's disarmament initiative, his track record as a longtime pacifist assures the world that the remaining weaponry is in good hands. The report then pivots to the signing of the seven-year agreement between the UN and Israel, which gives the UN full licensure power over Israel's magic formula. Another interview with Carpathia has him discuss his plans for a one-world unified religion. He states that the religions of the planet are finally putting aside their differences and uniting for the common purpose of uplifting mankind. When pressed about whether or not Carpathia would want to be leader of the world church as well, he declined saying that he's too busy with the UN right now to oversee that project. As far as I know, this is true, because he makes the Pope leader of this religion, which turns out to be the Babylon harlot faith I was so confused about in episode 1. While Buck is stunned by all this news, his colleagues at the paper are cheering. They celebrate the new era of human civilization, one free of war, bigotry, and discriminatory religion. Steve Plank calls, and tells Buck Carpathia needs him present for a meeting on Monday morning. This meeting will involve important dignitaries, including the 10 Security Council members, two of whom are Jonathan Stonegal and Joshua Todd Cawthorn. The only dispute is that there might be another person in line for the British Council seat instead of Todd Cawthorn, but that's probably not important. Buck is again concerned that these shady businessmen are so close to the UN Secretary General, but Steve swears up and down Carpathia is innocent. He also mentions Carpathia wants to see Hattie Durham again. Buck is thrown off and somewhat irritated, Quote, why doesn't he ask her himself? What am I now, a pimp? So good to know that everyone in this series thinks Hattie's just some prostitute. Awesome. Regardless of his gross attitude, Buck commits to at least talking to her. Rayford, meanwhile, is over the moon about his daughter's conversion to Christianity. They talk about getting her her own Bible, as well as ingratiating her into Bruce's core study group at New Hope. When they stop by to discuss Chloe's new faith with Bruce, he is pleased, but warns them that things are only going to get worse for Christians from here. Chloe jokes that that's not a very good sales pitch, 
but Bruce counters that the alternative, dying without having received Christ, is much worse. Bruce brings up the idea of creating a core group within the core group, one consisting of younger people who would be willing to evangelize all over the world. Chloe catches on instantly, quote, a cause, something not just to die for, but to live for, a group, a team, a force. So your little group inside the group, a sort of green berets, would be your tribulation force. The name sticks and becomes the title of the next book in the series. Bruce is grateful for Chloe's enthusiasm and youthful energy. They discuss how this group will be vital to winning people to the faith, but will also be extremely dangerous. He predicts a time in the future where believers will be singled out. Quote, There will come a time, Chloe, that followers of Antichrist will be required to bear the sign of the beast. There are all kinds of theories on what form that might take, from a tattoo to a stamp on the forehead that might be detected only under infrared light. But obviously, we would refuse to bear that mark. That very act of defiance will be a mark in itself. We will be the naked ones, the ones devoid of the protection of belonging to the majority. Despite all these warnings, Chloe vows to stay in this fight until the end. When we switch back to Buck, we find him driving toward New Hope, mulling over the decision that lays before him. He reflects over everything that has happened over the past two weeks, and all his encounters with the supernatural that he couldn't explain. He mourns for his dead friends, but focuses on the mission of finding truth. If the pilot endorsed him, Bruce Barnes must be the real deal. Buck is pleased to learn Bruce is roughly his age, and was apparently expecting him. Bruce rolls into it immediately, saying he doesn't have time for small talk, and he won't apologize for what he's going to tell Buck. Buck agrees, saying he's here because Captain Steele impressed him, and that if Captain Steele trusts Bruce, Buck is willing to listen. Bruce goes through his whole story once more, describing his lazy attitude toward the faith before the loss of his family and the disappearances. Buck tells him about the Russian invasion of Israel, and Bruce comments that God must be trying to get his attention. Buck concedes that he's got it, but he doesn't want to commit to anything all at once. Bruce understands, but says they live in dangerous times, and that Buck should really make up his mind sooner rather than later. Wanting to make sure he has all the answers, Bruce educates Buck in all the prophecy and scripture about the end times one might need, including information about the one world religion and the Antichrist splitting the earth into ten kingdoms. Buck gets a sinking feeling this Antichrist Bruce fears so much could be none other than Nikolai Carpathia himself. Around midnight, Buck asks if Bruce has seen the news, and informs him about the sweeping changes Carpathia is making to society. Buck finally asks out loud if Bruce thinks Carpathia is the Antichrist, and Bruce says there's really no other option. Bruce adds that the Antichrist has the power to deceive and trick and control the minds of mortals, and that they'll soon witness his incredible influence continue to expand. Buck admits he's going to meet with Carpathia on Monday, and Bruce begs him not to go. When Buck is adamant about going, Bruce cautions him that without protection, he will be susceptible to Carpathia's mind control. Buck asks if that means taking a bodyguard, and Bruce says he needs to have God on his side in order to face Carpathia. Without God's influence, Buck will be in both mortal and spiritual peril. Bruce tells Buck about the recently founded Tribulation Force, a group with the goal of fighting the Antichrist. The concept of fighting oppression appeals to Buck, and he asks if he can sit in on their meeting tomorrow. Bruce says he's not allowed, since it's only open to their leadership team, leaving out the fact that Chloe Steele, who converted literally yesterday, is also involved. Buck is still free to come to church Sunday morning, and Bruce gives him a spare Bible. When the Tribulation Force meets on Saturday, they all conclude Nikolai Carpathia is indeed the prophesied Antichrist. Bruce tells them about Buck's plan to meet with Carpathia tomorrow, and the group prays for his soul. 
Buck phones Steve Plank at the opening of chapter 24. He says he'll be at the big meeting on Monday, but he's not inviting Hattie Durham. When Steve asks why, Buck says he's not comfortable setting up a practical stranger with a woman. Steve is frustrated, saying he'll just contact her directly. Buck pushes his luck, asking his former editor if he's read anything about Carpathia being connected to biblical end-time prophecy. Plank goes quiet. Buck asks if he's still there, and Steve says he is. Buck asks again how Carpathia would react if he was questioned about the end times. Steve again does not speak, forcing Buck to wait 20 seconds before he gives Buck a two-word response. Staten Island. Buck is taken aback, wondering aloud if this is a threat. Steve says it's not a threat, but a warning. He doesn't know who might be listening. Buck takes out a yellow notepad and begins writing. He asks if Steve wants him to stay off the ferry because of the guy behind the wheel or the guy who supplies his fuel. Steve responds with the latter, which Buck takes to mean Stonigal is somehow involved. Buck asks who Steve actually works for, and Steve responds that his boss moves mountains. Buck takes that to mean Carpathia. Throughout another series of carefully worded statements, Steve cautions his old friend to stay away from linking Carpathia to any biblical prophecy, or else the meeting will end poorly for him. Back at New Hope, Ray discusses their conclusion that Carpathia is the Antichrist with Bruce. The only hang-up he has with their hypothesis is that most end-times writers predicted the Antichrist would emerge from Western Europe, Italy, Turkey, or Greece. Ray comments that Carpathia doesn't look Romanian, since Carpathia isn't dark-skinned. They decide to ask Buck what he knows. Bruce gives Buck a ring to see what he can tell them about Carpathia's background, and he tells them that Carpathia grew up near Cluj, Romania, and Ray wonders aloud why Carpathia isn't from a more mountainous region, what with his name and all. This comment reminds Buck of Steve's earlier message that his boss moves mountains. Perhaps Stonigal, and not Carpathia, is the true bad guy after all. While Buck processes this new angle, he also adds that Carpathia was technically born in Italy and has Roman heritage. Ray thanks him for the information, then floats the idea of him coming to church on Sunday. He says he might, but privately is certain he will attend. Buck then calls Hattie Durham to warn her against coming to New York on Monday. She says she's already been invited, and happens to want to go. Buck advises her against it, quote, because you don't strike me as that kind of girl, whatever that's supposed to mean. She says she's not a girl, and Buck's not her dad, so he can butt out. Buck says he's asking as a friend, and Hattie, sharp as ever, responds, quote, you're not my friend, Buck. It was obvious you didn't even like me. Buck tries his hardest, but Hattie is determined, hanging up on him before he can change her mind. At church the next morning, Ray and Chloe keep their eyes peeled for Buck, but it doesn't look like he'll show. But before the service begins, Chloe spies him out the window, gathered around an external speaker with a group of overflow attendees. After Bruce shows the videotape and tells his personal story again, many people speak publicly about their conversion stories, Chloe among them. Once church ends, they try to catch Buck, but he's already gone. When they return home, Chloe finds a note on their front door. I don't know how Buck knows where they live, but it's fine. His message says he was moved to tears by Chloe's story, and that he wants her to pray for him. He'll call as soon as his work stuff is concluded. Buck flies to New York that night, reading his Bible on the plane. As he tries to sleep at his apartment, he finds no comfort, knowing that his new acquaintances believe he will be sitting in on a meeting with the devil in the morning. As strange as it seems, Buck is terrified of being mind-controlled. In the morning, he still thinks over all he's learned. As far as he can tell, there's no other explanation for the disappearances or the two witnesses in Jerusalem except a supernatural one. He's still holding on to the hope that Jonathan Stonigal is the Antichrist, and that Carpathia is still his ally. 
He considers bringing his gun that's never been mentioned before to the meeting, but decides against it, knowing he probably won't make it past security. In the taxi to the UN building, he wonders if he should pray. Buck acknowledges that converting for the sake of having potential protection from evil isn't really the best way to go about it. He concludes the only way he can convert is if he truly believes in God. And judging by the past few years, it seems like God is trying to reach him. When Buck arrives at UN headquarters, he notices his publisher Stanton Bailey standing at the door. He gives Buck some encouragement, and tells him he'll see him after the press conference. Back in Chicago, Chloe floats the idea of getting lunch with Hattie, but can't get through to her. Ray checks her schedule and discovers Hattie has scheduled a 30-day leave of absence. He hopes she's not having trouble with her family. Chloe asks what Ray is doing that day, and he says he's going to watch Carpathia's press conference with Bruce at the church. Chloe says she'll probably swing by. Come back to Buck, who is escorted into a private conference room where this meeting is about to take place. Every step he takes makes him more unsure of what's going to happen. Quote, the closer he got to the conference room, the more he was repelled by a sense of evil, as if personified in that place. Almost without thinking, Buck found himself silently praying, God, be with me, protect me. But Buck receives no answer. He's frozen outside the door until Steve Plank invites him inside. Buck says he has to go to the bathroom really quick. Before he can escape, though, Steve shows him where he's going to sit, and Buck notes placards for attendees. Carpathia is sitting right next to Stonigal, and his other side is reserved for a personal assistant. Buck wonders who that could be, but pushes it to the back of his mind as he scrambles to the bathroom. He locks himself inside and prays. This time, Buck is completely sincere, admitting his need for God and acknowledging his sinfulness. When he returns to the conference room, he doesn't feel any better, but at least he knows his soul is secure. As he scans the room, he notices a security guard as well as some familiar faces. Chaim Rosenzweig, Stonigal, Todd Cothran, and Hattie Durham of all people. Hattie sits at the place intended for Carpathia's personal assistant, and everything starts to make sense. As Carpathia begins the meeting, Buck feels an oppressive evil force overwhelm him. Chapter 25 starts with Carpathia introducing his ambassadors. He starts with Todd Cothran, who will become the ambassador of the great states of Britain, included in which is most of Western and Eastern Europe, which I'm sure Europe was extremely psyched about. However, Carpathia gives the same ambassadorship to another British person in the room. Carpathia goes around the room conferring each person with their ambassador title, unless they are assistants or advisors. When Carpathia arrives at Buck, he welcomes him to the quote, team, and confers upon him the rights and privileges of his station. Buck doesn't know what any of that means, but he feels so flattered and honored to have been given this opportunity. Then he snaps out of it, realizing he's not part of Carpathia's team. Carpathia gazes into his eyes, and Buck feels compelled to agree and thank his leader for all he's done. But somehow Buck retains his composure, remembering he is an independent journalist and does not work for Carpathia. After an awkward moment where Buck remains silent, Carpathia shakes his hand and moves on to the next person. Buck realizes that without God's protection, he would have been mind-controlled. He feels a wave of gratitude for the Steeles and Bruce Barnes, without whom he would never have come to Christ. Hattie, by contrast, is thoroughly mesmerized. Carpathia finally turns to Stonigal and welcomes him to the team as well. This is apparently not what Stonigal signed up for. When Carpathia asks him to be seated, he refuses, but Nikolai says he's only kidding. Stonigal is furious at having been humiliated and does not obey Carpathia. Here's where things go wild. Carpathia announces to the room that he's going to show them a lesson about leadership. He calls out to the security guard standing in the corner, calling him by his first and last name, and invites him over. The guard is surprised, 
since he's never spoken to Carpathia before. Carpathia also knows the make and model of the handgun the guard is wearing, and asks the guard to give him the weapon. He obliges, and Buck understands the very dangerous situation he's now in. Stonigal is still angry, and asks why Nikolai is acting like a child. Nikolai asks him to switch places, and despite his misgivings, Stonigal obliges, and is now standing next to Hattie and Todd Cothran. Carpathia asks Stonigal to kneel. He refuses, and Carpathia asks again, but this time his argument is strengthened by the pistol held to Stonigal's head. The room panics, but Carpathia asks them politely to sit back down. He also recommends Hattie scoot her chair back a bit so her outfit isn't ruined. The Secretary General then says to the room, quote, When Mr. Stonigal is dead, I will tell you what you will remember. And lest anyone feel I have not been fair, let me not neglect to add that more than gore will wind up on Mr. Todd Cothran's suit. A high-velocity bullet at this range will also kill him, which, as you know, Mr. Williams, is something I promised you I would deal with in due time. The Englishman is not excited by this newest development, but before he can react, it's too late. Carpathia shoots Stonigal through the head, killing Todd Cothran as well. Carpathia sticks the pistol in Stonigal's hand, then continues speaking to the room. Quote, What we have just witnessed here, he said kindly, as if speaking to children, was a horrible, tragic end to two otherwise extravagantly productive lives. These men were two I respected and admired more than any others in the world. What compelled Mr. Stonigal to rush the guard, disarm him, take his own life and that of his British colleague, I do not know, and may never fully understand. Carpathia goes on to explain that Stonigal told him this morning that he felt personally responsible for two deaths in England, and that he couldn't bear to live with the guilt. As for Todd Cothran, he was also involved in these deaths, so in some sad way, justice has been served. He asks Hattie to phone security while he questions the others in the room about what they just saw. Hattie instantly runs to the phone and calls downstairs, reporting that someone has just died by suicide. Steve Plank describes how scared he was when Stonigal wrestled the gun away from the security guard. Chaim Rosenzweig expresses how glad he is that Nikolai was not harmed. Everyone in the room seems to have watched the same scenario unfold, Stonigal taking the weapon from the guard, killing himself and Todd Cothran. Buck is the only one who knows what really happened. He prays that Carpathia won't discover that he resisted the mind control, and God tells him to remain silent. When Carpathia reaches him, he informs Buck that Buck cared for and respected both of them, and was unaware that they attempted to kill him in London. Buck says nothing, but Carpathia doesn't seem to take notice. When the cops arrive, Buck gives one of them his card and asks to leave. He rushes back to the office and furiously types out everything he can remember about the incident. But as he's in the middle of writing, Stanton Bailey calls him in a rage. He asks why Buck wasn't at the press conference, and Buck says he was trying to write the story as quickly as possible. Bailey reminds him he has an exclusive interview with Carpathia that he's supposed to be having right now, and Buck calls Steve to see if it's still on. Steve says he must be joking, that if Buck has heard what happened he would know there's no time for an interview. Buck stops, and says he doesn't need to have heard about the incident because he was there. Steve is irritated that Buck blew off the meeting, saying that both he and Carpathia are very offended. Buck is shocked. Steve saw him there, and he had press credentials. None of that seems to matter. Steve hangs up, leaving Buck very confused. Stanton Bailey calls back, demanding to know why Buck wasn't at the meeting. Buck again argues that he was there, but no one there will vouch for him. He remembers the cop he gave his car to, and calls the police station, which has no record of the officer. Buck resigns himself to the fact that somehow, no one remembers his attendance at the meeting. All he can do now is try to convince his boss. Meanwhile, 
Ray, Chloe, and Bruce are watching the UN press conference on TV. They're stunned when they realize the young woman at Carpathia's side is Hattie. There's no evidence Buck was present during the disastrous meeting. Chloe hopes their prayers would be enough to protect him, but Bruce says he would need the covering of God himself. When Buck meets with Stanton Bailey, he realizes the magnitude of the force he's against. No one remembers he was at the meeting, and there's not a single paper or electronic record of him being present. He's just grateful for God's protection, or he too would have been mind-controlled like everyone there. Unfortunately for Buck, that protection doesn't shield him from the wrath of his boss. Bailey is very disappointed Buck didn't show, and considers firing him for the lapse in judgment. However, he knows Buck is too good of a reporter, and would just wind up working for a new paper. Instead, he's demoted to a staff writer and exiled to the Chicago Bureau. Despite this news, Buck is fairly happy with how this all played out. He packs his bags and catches a flight to Illinois, calling New Hope before he arrives. When Bruce answers, Buck confirms that Carpathia is undoubtedly the Antichrist. Furthermore, Buck wants to join the Tribulation Force. The rest of the group meet Buck at the airport. They pray to God for their new friend, especially for granting him protection against Carpathia. Quote, They moved through the terminal toward the parking garage, striding four abreast, arms around each other's shoulders, knit with a common purpose. Rayford Steele, Chloe Steele, Buck Williams, and Bruce Barnes faced the gravest dangers anyone could face, and they knew their mission. The task of the Tribulation Force was clear, and their goal nothing less than to stand and fight the enemies of God during the seven most chaotic years the planet would ever see. And that's the end of the first book. Congratulations on making it all the way through. Personally, I kind of thought this last chapter was a bit anticlimactic. Despite Carpathia demonstrating his powers, I still feel like they could have made a bigger gesture to show how evil he is. We won't get full-blown supervillain until book 7 or so, but I would still like to have seen something besides an execution. The last problem I have with this novel is the concept of Carpathia's persuasive abilities. If the Antichrist has mind control, doesn't that exempt his followers from the sin of believing him? If they don't consent of their own free will, which I know religious folks are big on, it seems unfair for that to count against their spiritual record. Since the Bible only describes the deceiver as one whom the whole world will believe, I feel it was a misstep on the writer's parts to make Carpathia's charisma have a supernatural edge. For our last Apocrypha, I wanted to take a look at the true motivation behind the franchise. While I'm sure the authors would argue the novels were all a part of a great push to evangelize the faith, I think a look at their spin-offs and marketing will tell a different story. The official Left Behind website boasts 80 million copies sold from the whole series. Even without adjusting for inflation, the novels alone would have made LaHaye and Jenkins fabulously wealthy. But as I've said before, the story of Left Behind doesn't end with its 13 novel series and 3 prequels. There's Left Behind the Kids, which spans 40 novellas of what old white men think teens would behave like during the apocalypse. There's Left Behind, colon, Apocalypse, another four spin-offs which follow the story of Sergeant Samuel Adams Goose Gander, I cannot believe that's this character's real name, as he serves in the 75th Army Rangers while war breaks out on the border of Turkey and Syria. I think I might have to dip into these because the premise of a military thriller set in the Left Behind universe is too rich to pass up. Furthermore, there's also a West Wing-style political spinoff titled Left Behind End of State, which, I guess, looks into how the rapture would have affected the political situation in the White House before Nikolai starts to take over. Books 1 and 3 are no longer in print, but book 2 is still inexplicably on sale. It's just wild. 
Furthermore, again, Jerry Jenkins did pound out a trilogy without the help of his co-author. The underground zealot novels track evil atheist Paul Stepola, who works for the National Peacekeeping Organization, which, as far as I can gather, is a government agency tasked with stopping out organized religion. I actually think this one doesn't take place in the Left Behind universe, as there's no mention of the Rapture or Carpathia. I guess it's nice to try to get away from the same old premise, but man is it weird to read about a persecution complex outside the influence of the Antichrist. And that's not to mention the audio dramas, CDs, and comics that have also been made out of this storyline. There's a whole soundtrack titled People Get Ready, inspired by the books that was released in 1998. It featured such prominent artists as Crystal Lewis, DC Talk, Audio Adrenaline, and Big Tent Revival. The graphic novels are a Frankenstein's monster of a mashup between dynamic comic book art and the truly abysmal writing of this novel. Judging by what I can find on Amazon, the graphic novels consist of the first and second books in the series, each split into five 50-page volumes. You can buy them new, ranging anywhere from 6 bucks to 35 a pop, depending on how fancy a print you want. And we can't forget the movie adaptations. We have the original Left Behind in 2000, followed by Left Behind 2 Tribulation Force in 2002, and the direct-to-DVD adaptation Left Behind World at War, which was released mostly to churches in 2005. While all three of these films were critically panned, they were apparently popular enough to merit a franchise reboot, with Nicolas Cage's Left Behind in 2014, which brought in $20 million on a budget of 16. And until this morning, I thought that was the end of the franchise's messy foray into film. Luckily for us, there's still one more shining jewel to set in the crown of Left Behind's cinematic career. Vanished, Left Behind Next Generation, was released in late 2016 and covers the love triangle between Gabby, Josh, and Flynn, confused teens who struggle to understand the world after one day millions disappear into thin air. Pathios's article on it quotes the film's synopsis, which includes such lines as, quote, Girls will relate to Gabby and her struggles to deal with missing parents and big sister responsibilities, while wishing they were in her shoes when she's forced to choose between the all-American hero Josh and the dark and mysterious Flynn. Guys will be pulled in by the suspense and cool new twist on the end-of-the-world adventure, just like The Walking Dead and The Hunger Games. Really connecting with the kids there, Jerry. If you follow me on Twitter, you're aware of the video game Left Behind Eternal Forces. But have you heard of its three sequels, Left Behind Tribulation Forces, Left Behind Rise of the Antichrist, and Left Behind World at War? Astonishingly, they're real-time strategy games, which already is something of a smaller genre in the gaming industry when compared to first-person shooters and battle royales. Frankly, I think a better way to adapt this series would be to go the route of a visual novel or walking simulator. That way, you could either make choices that affect the plot while still experiencing the world building, or you could stroll through deserted neighborhoods, walk along destroyed roads, and witness biblical judgments, which are certainly the franchise's focus. The games have been criticized as promoting religious violence, which the developers defend by saying that the way the games are intended to be played, it's much easier to convert and pray for opposing factions than it is to straight up kill them. I've only played a little of Eternal Forces, but I definitely want to see if that assertion holds true in World at War. I've left out their nonfiction and meta-analysis publications, but as you can see, LaHaye and Jenkins created a vast array of products over the past 25 years. Unfortunately, sales numbers aren't widely available, but the sheer amount of spin-offs, sequels, and reboots the franchise has spawned is a pretty good indicator that, despite their quality, these products aren't not profitable. Furthermore, 
Much of the advertising and release of these sundry movies and video games has been inside Protestant churches and communities, with only ancillary marketing to a wider audience. All of that is to say, I don't think Left Behind is a dire warning to non-believers that they should convert before it's too late. I think it's a reinforcement of the belief many evangelicals already hold, and a promise they will be spared the suffering that the rest of us foolish heathens will endure. And above all, it's a wide-ranging property designed to relieve believers of their pesky material wealth and concentrate it in the pockets of a few mediocre writers. That's what has always bummed me about about megachurches and prosperity gospels. The hypocrisy of advocating for a religion that preaches abandonment of possessions while at the same time raking in the dough is staggering and sad. Again I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. That'll bring us to the end of our show. Thank you all so much for listening. I've never done a podcast before, and I'm glad I was able to give it a try. If you can believe it, each episode takes roughly five hours to make, which is a lot more effort than I wanted to expend on these books. Also, I've been rereading ahead, and Tribulation Force is just miserably boring, so I'm not sure a three-chapter episode structure would work for every novel. Lastly, Tim Lanning and Jennifer Cheek are apparently working on their own Left Behind podcast, so keep an eye out for that, because they're both extremely funny. I just want to say thanks so much for indulging me on this project. I'll still be reading the books, so if you want to hear my thoughts on the franchise, follow me on Twitter at AaronSXL. Thanks for listening, and I hope you have a great week. This has been Honey, I Just Got Raptured, a podcast of the Earth's last days.